right, so first of all, uh, thank you all for coming on this Super Tuesday. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> nah, I can't promise to be as entertaining as uh, the politicians out there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I hope uh, you're, yeah, you'll forgive me, but I won't be as abusive, exactly. No, but that's uh, what we can believe you. <laughs> Thank you. That's right. I should hope so. All right, but uh, speaking about politicians and speaking about our topic today, an anecdote comes to mind that some of you may know, but about this um, Jew who comes into a bagel store uh, in New York City, and he says uh, to the cashier, please, can I have a bagel? The, ba the cashier says, no problem, it's $20 a bagel. $20 a bagel? He says, yes, $1 for the bagel and $19 for Israel. Oh, if it's for Israel, you're playing on my conscience, but that's fine. He has $20. The next day he comes in, he says, can I have some lunch? They say to him, yeah, $100 lunch. $100? You don't have a lunch menu? No, $100? <laughs> say, why? He says, why? He says, $10. Cashier says $10 for the lunch, $90 for Israel. Ah, oh, if it's for Israel, okay, it's $100. The next day, he comes in, again, orders dinner. <laughs> you know it already. Orders dinner, they tell him $500. $500? Yes, $50 for the dinner, $450 for Israel. $450 for Israel? I'm sick and tired of this. I'll decide when to give donations to Israel. How dare you tell me? I want to speak to your manager. The cashier says, no problem. You want to speak to the manager? Israel! Yes, someone wants to speak to him. <laughs> but, my friends, there's an Israel everywhere we go. And not only everywhere we go, but there's an Israel deep within us. And I think that if I had to pick, and again, feel free to disagree with me, but if I had to pick one topic uh, as the third biggest challenge that Jews are facing nowadays uh, will be very different than the first two topics. The first two topics, as you know, were assimilation and anti-Semitism. These are topics out there, right? In the world out there. But uh, today's topic, I think, is a topic that is not just necessarily in the world out there, but it's deep in here. And that's leadership. I think there's a very strong lack of leadership in the Jewish world and perhaps in the entire world today. That's one of the biggest challenges we face. If you look at our history, we've had leaders that were firm, that were visionaries, that were uh, also able to galvanize people in a very strong way, in a very powerful way, throughout all generations. This generation, I believe, is orphaned. We don't have those same type of... Yes, we have leaders. It's true. There's no doubt. Don't get me wrong. But leaders that speak to very particular segment of uh, the Jewish uh, population, or leaders that speak only about ideas, but they don't really act upon them, or they just are not activists at the same time as some uh, of the good old days, good old day leaders used to be. So I think leadership is a quality that's missing. And I'll evoke, before we go into the references, but I'll evoke the Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Kagan, who was a great leader, a great halachic leader. I lived up until about 80 years ago, uh, in the early 1900s. And uh, a student came up to him and asked him to interpret a phrase in the Talmud that he couldn't understand. What was the phrase? He says to the Chafetz Chaim, look, it says that before the Messiah will come, one of the last generations, 
Pnei Hador Kepnei HaKelev, the face of the generation will be like the face of the dogs. The face of the dog. What does this mean? Why not like the face of a dog? Why not like the face of, uh, I don't know, a condor? I like condors. Why the face of a dog? And the Chafetz Chaim brilliantly said, well, I'll tell you why. If you look at a person walking with his dog in the streets, what you see quite often here in the streets of Scottsdale, uh, you'll notice something quite interesting because the dog always wants to go ahead, to forge ahead. Someone who's looking at the scene from the side thinks that it is the dog that is leading the way. The dog is leading the person, not the person leading the dog. But if you look more carefully, you'll also notice that every few seconds the dog turns around to see where the person is going and based on that he decides which direction to go to. That's why the face of the generation will be like the face of the dog. There won't be any leaders. The leaders that will exist then will first look at the people. They'll be so insecure. Oh, where should we go? Where do they want to go? That's where we'll go. Will we forge the way? Will we pave a vision? Not necessarily. Leadership, again, I think is a quality that's uh, tremendously lacking today. And therefore, I chose this as the uh, third biggest challenge. Okay? Again, disagree with me. If you think it's something else, I'd love to hear your opinion. But um, since it was picked already, we can study it, right? Otherwise, I can study the topic that you'll uh, propose. But all right. Okay. So if we had to take this notion of leadership and how much it is lacking and how much we should really do everything in our power to rebuild it, I would divide it into four, into four essential ingredients. I think every uh, 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 supreme type of leadership or every uh, uh, quality leadership uh, has four ingredients, four separate ingredients. The first ingredient, as you can see here, is that we first and foremost have to believe that every person was born a leader. Everyone is a little leader within him. Everyone was, has a leader that is thirsty to lead. Everyone has this push within his soul that wants to grow, that wants to move forth, move upward, and lead. You know, Pablo Picasso was famously uh, asked, and I'll get to the references soon, but if he believes that every child is an artist, Picasso responded, of course, every child is an artist, but that's not the question. The question is that they can remain artists once they grow. That's the big question. Every child is born an artist, but can you remain that artist once you grow? I think that's the question. Everyone is born with a very strong leader within. The question is if we can continue to pay attention to him as we grow, and continue to develop, to develop that uh, leader once we grow. Now. Uh, therefore, I think every leader recognizes the leader within and also recognizes the leaders surrounding him. That's leadership. That's ingredient number one in leadership. How do I know this? I know this and I learned this from King Solomon himself. King Solomon who was the leader of his times. In fact, I don't think there was a leader that um, was as powerful as King Solomon ever in history. Now you can say Napoleon, Alexander the Great but they were there in times of wars. Uh, Solomon created peace around him. And with that power that he had, he was able to truly bring tranquility and, and peace to the world, to the world, which was really a marvelous achievement. 
But he was a true leader. Now, this is what he does. As a true leader, this is what he does when he wants to build the first temple. It's an interesting verse. Not because of the verse itself, but because of what King Solomon does in this verse. Let's read the verse. Again, the, that verse that describes on how King Solomon began to build the temple in Jerusalem, which is known today as the first temple. Let's go. And King Solomon sent to Cairo, He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Napoli. Right. And his father was a man from Cairo, right. Brasswood. He was filled with knowledge and understanding and intelligence for all tasks involved, brass, involving brass. He came to King Solomon Right, what seems bizarre here, King Solomon came, or where did he live? King Solomon was in Israel, right? He built the temple where? In Jerusalem. Now, who does he choose as his lead builder? Lebanese. A Lebanese guy. Thank you. From Tyre. Someone who's completely unknown. King Solomon had all the connections in the world. If the expression says uh, that it's not what you know, but it's who you know, King Solomon knew a lot of people. He <laughs> But he chose this anonymous guy from Tyre in Lebanon. Now, who was he? A Barbanel, Donna Barbanel, who was uh, one of the great commentaries of the Torah. He was himself persecuted, was tremendously wealthy, very close uh, to, the, to the royalty in Spain. And eventually, with the Spanish Inquisition, he was forced to move uh, from place to place. He eventually ended up in Italy. But this is what he writes about Hiram. Gives us a few more biographical details about Hiram, this lead builder. Let's continue. Who was a leading craftsman to build this most spiritual home? A simple Jew, Hiram. Right. His mother was an impoverished widow from the, from the not very famous tribe of Natafi, and his father was not even Jewish. Rather, came to the Tyre and Lebanon. Right. So he was a simpleton from an impoverished family. His father was not even Jewish. His mother was from the tribe of Natali, which is very uh, a small tribe. I wouldn't say insignificant. Every tribe is significant. But Cain um, was, uh, as uh, we would call it today, a nobody. Yet so Solomon didn't believe in that concept. There aren't any, uh, any people that are nobodies. He chose Hiram. Why did he choose Hiram? Perhaps to show us that, you see, leadership exists in every single human being. A true leader is someone first that recognizes the leadership within, but also that recognizes that leadership within the others and is able to reveal it in the others. King Solomon went to this man. He says, I don't care if you're not wealthy, and I don't care if you don't come from the Cohen family, and I don't care if, uh, you know, from the Cohen tribe. I don't care if you uh, are even, uh, you know, if, you're, if, if your lineage is fully Jewish or not. You're a leader. You know how to build. You can direct people on how to build this temple. I'm picking you. And this is what the Hasidic commentaries have to say about the selection of King Solomon. I think the words are just very powerful. Shmuel, why don't you continue? Shlomo, Shmuel, you see, almost the same. <laughs> Let's go. Jewishly illiterate, 
Right. And there you go. Solomon picks him as the leader. He himself was a true leader who recognized the leadership in everyone and made every single human being a leader in his own right. Hiram was that example, and he made many others too uh, true leaders. Now, I think that's, again, a, an essential quality in leadership, recognizing the leader within and recognizing the leader in others. I'll, I'll evoke the example of Dr. Ludwig Gutmann. Uh, I think you've heard me speak about him. He's really one of my heroes. I would warmly recommend everyone to watch the documentary on, on him. I found it on Netflix. I was watching it the other day. It's a very moving documentary, and it's, it's based on a true story, on, on the story of doc, Dr. Ludwig Gutmann. Dr. Ludwig Gutmann was one of the great brain, uh, sorry, spinal doctors in Germany until he was expelled from uh, Ludwig, like Ludwig van Beethoven, uh, Ludwig Gutmann. Gutmann, until he was expelled from Germany uh, by Hitler. In 1939, he was forced to move to Great Britain. They recognized his expertise, and uh, they appointed him as the head of the National Spinal Center in Great Britain. He came as a stranger into this institution, but he revolutionized it completely, and not just the institution of the National Spinal Center, but I think he revolutionized the medical world and I dare say the world altogether. How so? When he came in, he saw that that spinal center was treating paraplegics as lost cases. In fact, anyone who's a paraplegic in the 1930s up until Dr. Ludwig Gutmann came, until 1940-41, they were left to die in the hospital. They were heavily sedated. They were uh, even, uh, you know, the death was induced with all sorts of medicine, and within six months to a year, they would die. Ludwig Gutmann came in and said, this can't be. This is not fair. They have a life. So what if they're paralyzed, you know, from their thigh to the, all the way to the toes? It doesn't matter. And he started taking them, uh, taking the uh, them off their medication, he uh, got rid of any type of uh, uh, sedation, and he placed them on wheelchairs. Uh, I'm telling you, the documentary is a worth, uh, worth uh, watch. But he placed them on wheelchairs, and then not only that, he forced all of his nurses to also board wheelchairs and then compete with them, race with them in the hallways of the hospital so that they can utilize their muscles a little bit and bring back their own inner spirit and joy. Doctors who were working with Dr. Goodman uh, mocked him. Not only mocked him, they humiliated him. Sometimes they accused him of being uh, 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 you know, a, a cruel angel of death, as they called it. You bring suffering upon these people instead of leaving them to die in peace and in serenity. And in one of the exchanges, and that's why the name of the documentary, in one of these ex exchanges, uh, one of the doctors accuses uh, Dr. Goodman of making them suffer, of making these patients suffer, and he says, who do you think they are? They're paraplegics. Who do you think they are? Dr. Goodman responds so powerfully, who do I think they are? They are the best of men. The best of men. He won that fight. He transformed that hospital. Eventually, he created a mini Olympic for the paraplegics. Until in 1960, it was recognized by the world. 
He is the founder of the Paraplegic Olympics that uh, today draws thousands, tens of thousands of athletes from across the world and gives them this new spirit, this new hope, this new life. Why? Because there was one leader, one Jew, who refused to bow down to the consensus of his hospital. And he said to himself, I see that leadership within them. They can't be sleeping. They have to walk. They can't walk. They have to run. They can't run. They have to live. And he made them live again. That's a true leader. That was what King Solomon did to Hiram. That's what Dr. Gutman did to uh, his own patients. And that's what we ought to do if we are to truly revitalize this notion of leadership in our generation. I think this is why when Moses is introduced to us in the Torah, it's fascinating, but it doesn't say where Moses came from. In fact, there's almost nothing about Moses in the Torah, but uh, Moses before he became the leader. The only thing we know about Moses was that he was a shepherd. Look, look in the Torah, it doesn't say that he went to Harvard or to Yale. It doesn't say, <laughs> it doesn't say that he was uh, foreign in his class. It doesn't say that he was the best athlete out there. No, nothing. And doesn't say anything about his family. In fact, his parents aren't even mentioned by name when he's, when he's born. Let's read the verse, Exodus 2, 1 to 4. This is the birth of Moses. Go ahead. Uh, Diana, go ahead. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant, gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Right. Uh, we all know what happened. The rest is history. Now, <laughs> but did you notice something? That's, that's fascinating. Uh, Moses' mother is mentioned countless times here, but not once by name. Who is she? I'd love to know who she is. Give me a few more details. His father is also not mentioned by name. A man from the tribe of Levi, of uh, Levi married a Levite woman. What's the message here? The message here is that it doesn't matter where you come from. Okay, you could be nicknamed by society as a nobody. In God's eyes, you're a Moses. You're a Moses. Moses didn't come from anywhere special. The Torah at least, does, even if he did, the Torah doesn't even speak about it. Because that's not what makes you great. What makes you great is your ability to reveal that inner leader within you and within others. Uh, I'll evoke a very quick anecdote about you know, I have this custom, I've shared it with others, and I, I don't like to speak about my personal life, but I share it with others because I, I think I would recommend everyone to do this. I think it's, it's helped me a lot. But, you know, the way you go to sleep at night is the way you wake up in the morning. I'm a firm believer in that. If you go to sleep angry, you'll wake up angry. That's why every marriage expert out there will tell you that never go to sleep if you're still fighting with your spouse. Why? Because it will ruin the next day, or it might ruin the next week, it might ruin the next month, it might ruin your marriage eventually. Always go to sleep uh, in peace. Now, um, so before I go to sleep, I read, I read a book. I read, um, reading the letters that the late Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Schneerson, would write to many people 
he would ask him for his advice from all around the world. And uh, these letters are really illuminating. Uh, as a rabbi, it teaches me a lot also about how to respond to people and so on. But um, uh, I remember reading a letter where the late Lubavitcher Rebbe was writing to a Jew in Norway, I think it was, some uh, remote country in Europe. And uh, this Jew apparently was thanking the Rebbe for uh, a certain favor that the, the Rebbe did to him. And uh, apparently he signed a letter saying that, uh, most of all, Rebbe, I thank you for caring about a small Jew from a small town. The first thing the Rebbe does in this letter is that, as per your comment of a small Jew from a small town, know that there is no such thing as a small Jew. There's no such thing as a small Jew. I thought it was beautiful, just beautiful. But it showed, again, the type of leader he was. There's no such thing as a small Jew. No such thing as a small human being. There's no such thing. We all have leaders within. And we, we just have to recognize it. And sometimes we give up on that leader within us and within others. Sometimes, yes, life uh, tacks us by our horns, as they would say. And, uh, yeah, we have mortgage to pay and we have mouths to feed and we have this and that. So we forget about the leader. But uh, it's lacking. It's lacking in our generation and it's time that this leadership awakes. And uh, I'll conclude just this first ingredient with a riddle. Some of you may know it, maybe not. But let's read this riddle. Let's go. Okay, can you? Yeah? Okay. It's up to you. No problem. No problem. So, no problem. Uh, one friendly question. It is time to elect a new moral leader and your vote counts. Huh. Yeah. Facts about three leading candidates. Speaking about Super Tuesday. There you go. <laughs> go ahead. Candidate A associates with crooked politicians and consults with astrologists. He's had two mistresses. He also chain smokes and drinks eight to ten martinis a day. All right. That's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Candidate B. <laughs> um, these are real people. <laughs> they are. They really are. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> okay. He was kicked out of office twice, sleeps until noon, used opium in college, and drinks a quart of whiskey every five Okay, you know that. It's all right. Good. And Ken A.C., he's a decorated war hero. He's a vegetarian, doesn't smoke, drinks an occasional beer, and hasn't had an extra barrel of beer. Until he's candidate, after Which he was... candidates would be your choice? Yeah. I have to add, a candidate, C after he was elected, he did have an extra, uh, you know, a few... A few extramarital affairs, but uh, up until then, we didn't, uh, we didn't know of any. So, who would you pick? Candidate A, candidate B, or candidate C? D. <laughs> D, thank you. D? Okay, because you know who it is. <laughs> Come on. Who would you pick? No one picks C? <laughs> I thought you would all pick C. All right. <laughs> well, let me tell you who they are. Candidate A is FDR. Candidate B is Winston Churchill. Candidate C is Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler. Now, you see, uh, we judge people by their outer surface. 
Unfortunately, we don't look at the leader within. And that outer surface very often blocks us from seeing the leader within. But if we could look at the leader within, we might find a Winston Churchill. Who knows? Uh, I wouldn't mind finding a Winston Churchill here and there. <laughs> There's many great stories about Winston Churchill. I won't deviate too much. I'll tell you just one. But uh, there was an actress that really didn't like him in Great Britain, but she had to invite him. You know this one also? Good. So she had to invite him to her play, because after all, he was the prime minister. So she sent him two invitations, saying, uh, Dear Mr. Churchill, thank you. Um, uh, uh, here are two invitations for my next play. Uh, one for you, and one for a friend of yours, if you have one. Winston Churchill, who was very sharp-minded, responded, thank you very much for both invitations to your next play. Unfortunately, I won't be able to make it, but please send me an invitation to your next play, if you have one. <laughs> okay, all right, there are many other stories, but we won't go too much into Churchill. All right, but uh, you see, so th again, we have to look at that inner leader, which leads me to point number two. Yes? Yeah, Rabbi, I've just got a question. Yeah. I've always felt that one of the important traits of a leader mm -hmm. is to bring up other leaders, to have somebody have a, have a succession plan, have right. a replacement, so that when you leave the earth, you have somebody who can um, step in your shoes. Very you good. Train him and all that. Now, Rabbi Schneerson is clearly a leader. To my knowledge, nobody has replaced him. Is that what the Hasidim say? It's by design because he was so special. He can't replace him, or was it because he couldn't find somebody worthy of replacing him? That's a good question. I think that Rabbi, Rabbi Schneerson was um, a person who obviously couldn't create, recreate himself. He's too much of a giant in my eyes. But he, cre he recreated many versions of himself around the world. I think we see them with many of the Chabad rabbis who really sacrificed themselves day and night to give of themselves uh, for the Jewish people. So in that sense, he created many small Schneersons. But it's true. He didn't create one big one that replaced him. Um, like if somebody had a question, like this person in Norway, wanted, who, if, a, if a Jew has a question, is there a place for, is there a forum for them to ask the question? Like there was with Rabbi Schneerson. That's a good question. I, uh, I mean, I, I think what he did, and I've studied him, uh, Joseph Telushkin just wrote a book about the Rebbe, and he writes about this too, but what he did brilliantly is that he knew he was dying. I think he knew he was dying. And um, for the last 15, 20 years, he encouraged more and more his students to go to the local rabbi, to make themselves a mentor. Why? Because uh, he wanted that burden off his shoulders so that people could, could live in a time where he doesn't exist anymore. It's true, no one can, it's tough, it's tough. But uh, yeah, it's a good point. I will, I will evoke just the, the image of an instrument, which is an image that's coming to mind. I don't know why, but an instrument is a, is a powerful thing. Now, um, if you knock on it, or if you, right, if you uh, just place your hand on the strings of a harp, on the strings of a guitar, or uh, you hit the piano notes, it creates many different sounds. I think Rabbi Schneerson, in a way, was, was that big instrument. And uh, people touched him in many sorts of ways. And uh, the notes went flying all around the world. It's going to be hard to create, to collect all these notes and uh, create, recreate a symphony. But 
but you have those nodes around the world. Yes? I think that's right. Yeah. Right, right, very true, very true, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think he, my philosophy is he can't have, not, not everyone can be a leader at all times, and I think all through the history of man, you have these powerful leaders, and they set things in motion, and maybe the next generation doesn't have a leader, and maybe right. the next generation has less of them, but then, you know, we just have to keep the work going forward, and then at some point, Either the situation demands it, or something happens, and now you have a leader standing up. Right. Now you have a Lincoln stands up. Right. Or you have a Churchill. Right. No one led during the First World War. I mean, the whole point of the First World War was that there was chaos. Was that there was chaos? Right. You had all these people in in Europe who couldn't leave. That's why the war started. Right. Because they all looked at each other and said, "Oh well, we can't do anything. We have this treaty. Any one of them could have stopped it." Right. Right, right. But then, but then time elapsed, and yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's put all this stuff out there, and maybe two generations from now there'll be somebody even greater than Yeah. 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 Keep the work going. That's true. Exactly. Exactly. Very good. Very good. You remind me of. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but we'll we'll finish this. Don't worry. <laughs> But uh, there's a great image about um, the Jewish people and their loyalty to the Torah, which really doesn't make sense. And I'll tell you why. Because the parable is that uh, imagine that you have uh, a husband who comes home one day and says to his wife, why don't you make me soup for dinner? And I'll be back at about 6 p.m. Fine. She makes him the most lovely chicken soup. At 6 p.m., the soup is waiting on the dinner table for the husband. Right? 6 p.m., 6.05, 6.10, 7 p.m., 8 p.m., the husband doesn't show up. The next day, he's still not here. Next month, he's still not here. Next year, he's still not here. The next 10 years, he's still, the soup is still on the table. The next 20 years, he's, the children now have grown, and they're starting to fight. Well, our father wanted salt in his soup. Now he wanted more pepper. He actually wanted tomatoes. He wanted, the soup is still on the table. Three generations go by. Five, the soup is still on the table. And the children are still arguing about the soup. God did the same thing to the Jewish people. He gave us the Torah. And he said, yeah, I'll be right back. The children started fighting. No, we have the soup, the Torah, but uh, really, there should be salt in it. There should be, no, you should take out the onions. You should put in the garlic. You should do this. And for many generations of God, we're still fighting about the soup. Now, the husband shouldn't complain. <laughs> he should say thank you that the soup is still on the table. That's, so... In a way, I feel that that's, that's sometimes the vacuum that's created too, right? There's no God, which is the ultimate leader. There's no God. God promised, yes, I'll be back. I'll be with you. I'll show you wonders and so on. But we've had a rough ride. But guess what? We're still speaking about the soup on the table. And he should be happy about that. He wasn't so loyal as a husband. And the son is a giant. He just never left the land. Right. 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 Right.
That's true. <laughs> Very good. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah. We can be Isaac. We can be Isaac. Yeah, it's more quiet, it's, it's less. Uh, you're right, but we're keeping that uh, discussion about the soup going until the next generation comes, until something else, until God himself comes. Okay. <laughs> lentil soup. Very good. Okay, good. All right. Now, this leads me to the next point, because once we've discovered the leader within it, uh, within, the, within ourselves, and with, especially within uh, the people that surround us, we have to attend to it. But we have to attend to it with care. We have to attend to that leader within with love, with consistent love, with consistent care. Now, there's a beautiful verse here in Exodus that speaks about the giving of the Torah that says that the people of Israel, it's a famous verse during the giving of the Torah, saw the voices. They saw the voices, right? That's the next verse. And all the people saw the voices and torches. <laughs> next reference. Okay, they saw the voices. Uh, fine, why don't you read it? Go ahead, go ahead. And all the people saw the voices and the torches, the sound of the shofar and the smoking mountain, the people saw them. Mm-hmm. What? Right. Uh, no, yeah, so, so that was uh, Exodus 20, 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, it was cut off. Sorry? Right, exactly. That's the big question. How do you see voices? Oh, synesthesia. That's the scientific answer. But that's right, you can see voices. So all of a sudden, three million people uh, experience anesthesia. <laughs> Could well, be. You know, I know when the brain. Get, get right, right, right. Right, right. So no, that's a good point. That's 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 a good answer. I think that the the kabbalistic answer, at least, or maybe the the, the more psychological answer is that you see much of what we see, as, as mentioned here with the uh, riddle, what, much of what we see in others is uh, only 10% of the other, maybe 20% of the other. 80% of the other we don't really see. We don't. We don't see the pain in the other. We don't see the joy in the other. We don't see the feelings of the other. We don't see the thoughts of the other. We don't. It's impossible. Aman Sinai, our level was so high that we actually saw the other and in his entirety, we saw the 100% of the other. We saw the voices within the other. We saw the feelings. We saw what he thought. We saw everything that was boiling within the other. That was the level of connection that we attained. That, that's, that's the Kabbalistic answer. They saw the voices. On Mount Sinai, we were given a role to become leaders. When God gave us that role, he said that you'll need this quality. To be the ultimate leader, you'll need, to, you, you'll need to see the voices in the other. If you only judge others based on what you see, you've missed the point. You have to try and dig and dig and dig until you see the 100% in the other. Everything. The voices themselves. That comes with true care. That comes with knowing the individual, feeling the individual, getting the individual. That's how it comes. Um, you know, I... I, I, I've always wondered until three years ago I had an epiphany. But uh, why is it? Can you explain to me? <laughs> why is it that when we need surgery, <clears throat> we go looking for the best surgeon out there? And when we find that best surgeon, we have to study him from head to toe and uh, almost have, uh, make a PhD on the surgeon. 
while when we board a plane we don't even care who the pilot is we don't care for all we care it could be a drunken uh, cowboy out there but we're facing the same danger if the pilot is crazy we die if the surgeon is crazy we die so why do we research who the surgeon is when we don't research who the pilot is case of the surgeon, you feel you have some control. In the, in the, in the case of the, of the plane, you really don't have control. Because if you have to fly somewhere... So don't fly. Well, that's, that's the other <laughs> but if you're going to fly, right. you really can't control... You can't control pilot. that. So you can, uh, I don't know, you can start lobbying Congress, and I don't know. I have a mock attention, you won't fly. Really? You know, yeah, for that reason. <laughs> for that reason. Yeah. The only, well, the only way he flew, like, to our daughter's wedding, which was... Yeah, Here. was it the private he jet? In Toledo, I know. Uh. He only flew if, if his rabbi, if his rabbi, some orthodox man, uh. if his rabbi sat next to him. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> rabbi could survive. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he figured the rabbi's not going down, so he'll fly with the rabbi. So I'm going to tell you a little secret. <laughs> I want to tell you a little secret. You should tell this to your family, because my worst nightmare is boarding a plane and sitting next to an orthodox rabbi. <laughs> That's my worst nightmare. <laughs> Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. So, can anyone? T- <laughs> well, not that I travel. It speaks a lot. That's my one sign. You know? That's all. So, if he's nice and kind, and uh, you know, leaves me uh, with my books, I'll be okay. Okay. So, I, I think that uh, does anyone have another answer uh, for this uh, riddle? I think the answer is simple. You see. If the surgeon is dumb and stupid and crazy or whatever you want to call him, you die, he still survives. He's okay. If the pilot is crazy, you both die. You're in this <laughs> together. So you figure, oh, I don't have to check who the pilot is because he's in the same boat as I am. He doesn't want to die just as I don't want to die. <laughs> exactly, unless you fall uh, into a terrorist or something. Sorry? Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And I think that's, that's the level of leadership we need. We don't need surgeons. We need pilots. We need leaders who are in this together with you, who care for you, who see your voices. Yes. I used to fly a lot for work. Yeah. I hated to fly. Oh, uh, okay. I inherited that from my mother. Uh, over time, yeah. I learned the place I wanted to sit was next to a pilot. <laughs> oh, very nice. Very nice, exactly. Very good. Okay, I think this is what we find with Jacob. There's a very interesting conversation that Jacob has as he's fleeing from the hatred of his uh, brother Asaph. Uh, his brother Asaph, who wants to kill him, he's fleeing to um, Haran. And um, um, there he has to meet his uncle, who will give him shelter and so on. But as he arrives in the city of Haran, uh, he meets these uh, shepherds. And he engages in a very interesting conversation with them. Let's read the verses. Why don't you read one more, and then we'll continue. Go ahead, we'll read one more. Jacob arrives after a long journey from the land of Canaan to ancient Mesopotamia at the city of Haran. There he encounters a well surrounded by a number of shepherds and their sheep lying beside him. Jacob approaches these shepherds. The Torah records their detailed conversation. And 
Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Are things going well with him? And they said, Things are going well. And behold, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Right. And he said, The day is yet long. It is not the time to take in the livestock. Water the sheep and go pasture. Right. Now, what is Jacob exactly telling them here with this last verse? They, these are complete strangers. Jacob tells them, in other words, as we'll see, uh, uh, you know, the words of Rashi, he says to them, hey, you guys are lazy bums. That's what he says to them. Why are you here? You should be working. Let's read what Rashi has to say. Go ahead. Right, so they gave them an excuse. But what is stunning to me is here comes a complete stranger, Jacob, from a different land. Engages in conversation with these locals. And he says to them, he starts rebuking them. He says, so you should be working. What are you hanging around here? It's not time to drink a beer. Go back to work. I think he's saying, Scram, I want to, I want to talk to this girl and help. Yeah, that's right. Uh, maybe. That's Fine. But what's fascinating to me is that the, 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 the locals are saying, are actually responding. They're not beating him up. They're not saying, hey, who are you? You came from a strange land. Get out of here. Who are you to talk to us like this? They actually are responding. Yeah, we can't do this. They give him a whole response as if, yes, here's the teacher, here's the student. Hey, my dog ate my umuk, whatever it may be. So why? Why this conversation? Why this reaction? I think the answer is, is in one word. Ready? One word. It's very simple. No. How does Jacob address them at the very beginning? Look at this. My brothers. My brothers. I'm a pilot. I'm not a surgeon. <laughs> We're in this together. You are my brothers. Once you've created that care, that love, then anything comes. Then anything comes. There's a great parable uh, given by a great Hasidic Jew that I... I uh, truly admired. Um, have you ever been to a Russian sauna? Has anyone been to a Russian sauna? A Russian sauna? Okay. That's, yeah, so you walk into a Russian sauna, apparently I've never been. And uh, I don't know, I can't stand that. Uh, sauna, apparently, okay, it doesn't matter. Fine. Uh, a, Ru a Russian sauna is apparently, as you come out of the sauna all sweating, you have someone there who volunteers to slap you with a big leaf. Right? Slap your back. And it feels really good. Slaps your back. It hurts, but uh, you feel the heat. It's like, uh, it feels liberating, apparently. Now, let me ask you a question. If you, <laughs> if you would be walking in the street, and you would have the same guy come to you with a leaf and smack you, how would you respond? Would you say, yes, I want more. Feels so good. No. Right? You would turn around and hit him back. Why? <laughs> I'll tell you why, because uh, this person in the sauna only hits you after you've been wrapped with warmth, after you've enjoyed the embrace of the sauna. Then you can take any hit. The guy in the street hasn't given you any love yet, so you can't stand the fact uh, that he's hitting you. You can only speak to someone at this level 
if you've given them love, if you've enwrapped them with the warmth of a sauna. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise it simply doesn't work. Leaders uh, need to be discovered within, but they also need to be attended to with this warmth, with this love. And that, I think, is also very much missing. Leaders today, I mean, I'm generalizing, of course, but leaders today have a lack of empathy. They really do. I mean, uh, you know, they either buy the book too much in the box and uh, they just follow guidelines or uh, they've lost their emotions a long time ago. I don't know. But uh, Jacob was a leader. He called them brothers. Uh, any leader that m comes to your mind, I'm sure you'll see it, that he had that element of empathy. And uh, I think this is what we find with the sacrifice of the poor man. You see, in the temple, if you were wealthy, you would bring a kosher animal, like a cow, for example, right? If you were poor, you couldn't afford a cow. So what would you bring? A bird, right? A pigeon. Many pigeons, you pick a quail, a pigeon, and you could bring it to the temple. That was the poor man's sacrifice. Now, what's interesting is that the poor man's sacrifice was entirely burnt. The bird was burnt with its feathers. The Torah says very clearly in Leviticus that by burning the entire bird of the poor man, it created a pleasant aroma for God, a satisfying reach nichoach, a satisfying aroma to God. Now, Rashi asks a very pragmatic question. Have you ever smelt the burn, uh, smelt burnt feathers of a bird? Apparently, I've, I've never. Apparently, it smells terrible. So how could you say that? That's a pleasant aroma for God. Don't lie. That's not a pleasant aroma for anyone. It stinks. So why, why say that? That's the question of Rashi. Let's read the verse, the, uh, Rashi's question, and then uh, the beautiful commentary here. Who's next? Go ahead. Okay, so Rashi asks this question. Let's continue. But surely you will not find even the simplest of people uh, who, when smelling the odor of burnt feathers, does not find it repulsive. Why then does Scripture command us to send the feathers out to smoke? Right. And it's not even a pleasant aroma. So why, why does the Scripture lie? And this is a beautiful commentary uh, by Rabbi Schneerson. Speaking of Rabbi Schneerson, this is what he says. Uh, let's, let's continue. I find this really beautiful. Go ahead. Uh, when the Torah tells us to leave the feathers on the bird and place it that way on the burning altar so as not to embarrass the prophet, it tells us what the, what the bird feathers will, that the bird feathers will generate right. pleasant aroma to God. Right. They will smell as sweet as the most succulent beef. For can there be a more delightful smell to God than the one which spares embarrassment for a poor tree? You and I may experience the smell of the burning feathers as awful, but for God, if this is conferring upon a poor Jew more dignity, strength, and joy, can you conceive of a more all right, they're beautiful. So it is a pleasant aroma for God. Why? Because it's uh, allowing or enabling the poor man to maintain his dignity. There's nothing more pleasant than that. And uh, that's the level of care that we need to uh, truly provide to each and every leader within. I'll just conclude with a story that I've, uh, one of my favorites, about the great-grandfather of Rabbi Tversky, Rabbi Dr. Tversky, I think we mentioned him in the first class. Uh, yes. 
and uh, he's a famed psychiatrist from Pittsburgh. I think today he lives in Jerusalem, but uh, his great-grandfather was a Hasidic rabbi who was once traveling through uh, Poland, I believe, with his uh, Hasidim, with his students, and they were stuck in this village for Shabbat. Uh, the students went to find out where the rabbi and his surroundings can stay, and they found out that there's an inn owned by a Jewish lady, and she'll be more than happy to host them for the Shabbat and cook for them and everything else. They uh, moved to this inn for the weekend. On Shabbat uh, afternoon, they are served lunch by this woman. What is served typically, especially in Ashkenazic circles, for uh, Shabbat lunch? That's right, cholent. Cholent, cholent. It's this stew with potatoes and meat and uh, peas and other things. That's right, that's right. Do you know that it's a French word, cholent? Cholent, short, long. Short, long. Which means hot, slow. Because it cooks slowly. Um, anyway, so uh, the rabbi served the cholent first. And he takes a spoon, eats uh, a piece of it, and he says, oh, this is so delicious. He takes his spoon again and eats more. He says, so delicious, I have to have more. And he eats more and more and more until he finishes the entire pot. His students can't believe it. What? We don't know. Our, our rabbi was, uh, uh, you know, filled with uh, gluttony like this. They asked the, the poor woman, uh, you know, uh, the rabbi finished, is there any chon left for us? The woman says, yes, you're lucky I made a second pot. The rabbi says, oh, you made a second pot? I want that. She breaks the second pot, and again, he eats the entirety of the pot. The students can't believe it. They truly can't believe it. And at the end, there was really nothing left in the pots. The students were cleaning the table. One of the students brought those two pots back to the kitchen. He says, I'd like to know really if it was that delicious. Why did our rabbi eat like this? And there was a tiny bit of chocolate left on the side of the pot. He takes his finger, puts it, uh, you know, put, takes some of the chocolate, puts it in his mouth. And he wanted to vomit at that very second. I've never tasted such revolting chocolate in my life, he says to him. So why then did the rabbi eat it all? And then it occurred to him, that's right. He finished the entire chocolate. Why? Because he knew that if he would pass it on, people would start chastising this uh, lady. They, she would, they would start even humiliating her. How dare you prepare such a challenge for our important rabbi? He didn't want that to happen. So he finished the entire challenge. This was a man who understood, who saw the voice in the uh, innkeeper. That's the type of leader that we ought to become and that we ought to cultivate in others. Ingredient number three. Right, right. Right. Very good. That's true. That's true. Especially humiliation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the Talmud says famously that one should rather throw himself into a ball of fire or into an oven of fire rather than humiliate someone else. Yeah, going back to Winston Churchill, one day a woman stood up and humiliated him as he was giving a lecture. It's a known uh, anecdote. And she says, Mr. Churchill, I think you drunk. He says to her, <laughs> well, you're dumb, and tomorrow I'll be sober. <laughs> what? I think it was later. 
Lydia, I think that was the story with the poison. I think so. You know the story that, I think it was her, who came up to Winston Churchill and said, if I was married to you, I would feed you poison. He said, if I was married to you, I would eat it. <laughs> A lot of good stories with Winston Churchill. Okay. All right. In any case, the third... <laughs> The third ingredient, the third ingredient we learn from the portions uh, of, uh, that we're reading right now in the Torah, the portions that deal with the, the building of the tabernacle. Now, uh, it's interesting to note that there were three, three different items. I don't bring all three of them. I don't know why, but there's only the menorah you quoted. But three different items, three different utensils in the tabernacle that needed to be built uh, made of one piece. One of them was the menorah, as you'll soon see. That was made of pure gold, but of one piece of gold. The other one was the cherubim, those baby faces that were on top of the ark. They needed to be made of one piece. And the third utensil were the trumpets. The trumpets that they blew during the festivals also needed, needed to be made of one piece. The trump, trumpets were made of silver, the cherubim were made out of copper, and the, um, of, of, no, the cherubim were made out of gold, I think, and the menorah was made out of gold too. But they all needed to be made of one piece. Miksha is the Hebrew word. Why would they need to be made of one piece? It takes a skilled craftsman to understand how hard it is to make a menorah of one piece. Right? It's, it's almost impossible. Yet the instruction was to make the menorah and the, those other two uh, utensils made of one piece. Let's read the, the verse itself. Let's read uh, what it says about the verses. Uh, let's continue about these utensils. Let's turn. Okay. Right, okay, so that speaks about the menorah, but again, those are the, why? And I think, I, I think, I, I think the commentaries are, are very clear about this. The menorah, the cherubim, and the trumpet symbolize three values in society. The first one, the menorah, is the value of leadership. Because leaders eliminate, like the menorah. The cherubim is the value of education. That's why the cherubim were made of uh, baby faces, children's faces. The trumpets is the value of happiness. They sound happiness, they play happiness. It's the value of happiness. That's interesting to note. That for these three values, in order for them to truly exist, we too need to be made of one piece. See, if we want to be leaders, we have to be made of one piece. What we say should be what we do also. What we think should be what we say, and what we say should be what we do. We have to be made of one piece. We can't do one thing and preach something else. It just doesn't work. If there's dichotomy in the leader, what? Exactly. You've got to walk the walk and talk the talk. Thank you. And if there's dichotomy in the leader, uh, I have a small he may be, that leader. It could be just a parent. It could be, you know, just me versus myself. Me leading myself. That leader will eventually not be believed. It's, it's, uh, we don't see that among politicians a lot, unfortunately. But you need to be made of one piece. It's true for education. If children hear two voices at home, it kills the children. It really does. That's why when the rebellious son is introduced to us in the Torah, much later on, I don't bring the verse, 
but he's introduced to us as a son that does not listen to the voice of his father and to the voice of his mother. It doesn't say that the son does not listen to their voices. It says to the voice of his father and to the voice of his mother. You know why? He became a rebellious son, the Torah is almost saying, because he heard two voices at home. It wasn't their voice, their united voice. It was the voice of his father, the voice of his mother. When you hear that conflict at home, when you hear that broken peace at home, then education really can't take off. So that's the image of the Kurubim that need to be made of one piece. And trumpets that symbolize happiness. In order to be happy, you too need to be made of one piece. Yeah, you can't say, well, you know what, I want to go on a diet, but uh, I love cheesecake. I want to go to shul on Shabbat, but I love to play golf. Uh, you name it. <laughs> I don't know. I love to give charity, but I love, I love my money. It doesn't work. It just simply doesn't work. You have to be made of one piece. You have to follow your convictions. Uh, that's how you create happiness. Leadership needs to be made of one piece. Leaders need to be made of one piece. That, I think, is the third biggest ingredient. Um, and I think this is uh, what the story from King Solomon, going back to King Solomon, evokes. But it's a famous story about these two women who were fighting over the same baby. They had uh, babies at the same time, but uh, one of the babies died. The woman whose baby died tried to steal the baby of the other woman, saying, it's my baby, not yours. And they came to King Solomon. What should we do? Whose baby is it? Who's your daddy? Um, so uh, this is what King Solomon responds. Let's read the verses. My Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. On the third day after I gave birth, she also gave birth. Right. This woman's child died during the night because she lay on it. She arose during the night and took my son from my side while I slept, laid him on her bosom, and laid her dead child on my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I observed him in the morning, I realized that he was not my son to whom I had given birth. The other woman replied, It is not so. My son is the live one, and your son is the dead one. King Solomon briefly reiterated their arguments and ordered, Bring me a sword. The king then said, Cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman who claimed that her son was stolen from her said, Please, my master, give her the living child and do not kill it. The other woman said, neither mine nor yours shall he be cut. Right. The king spoke up and said, give the first woman a living child and do not kill it, for she is his mother. Right. So the real mother, obviously, was the mother that didn't want a child to be cut into two. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Was King Solomon really suggesting to cut the child into two? Was he a murderer all of a sudden? What was he suggesting? So you can say, yes, he was playing a trick on them and so on. I think that what, what he was suggesting was beyond that. Was he, what he was suggesting to the woman is that, what, you want a child that really is divorced between two parents, that he's cut into two? The real mother says, no, I want my child to have one voice. Because I know that if he has two voices, he could be, he could be cut into two, God forbid. So, so going back to the idea of leadership, to the idea of that leadership at home, to the idea of leadership outside of the home, we too need to be made of one piece. We can't cut our inner leader. It, 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 will, it will kill us. It will kill everything that we stand for. I mean, not physically, obviously, but, but uh, it will kill our convictions. 
kill all the ideas and ideals that we ought to believe in. That's the idea of one piece. Uh, ingredient number four is, I think, leadership that is also very much needed today, leadership that, is, uh, that comes with unhindered actions. I think very often leaders are stuck into the game of uh, politics, diplomacy, and bureaucracy, and so on, that until something is done, it takes forever. Leaders sh leader, true leaders take actions no matter what. They're unafraid to take those actions. They, they know what needs to be done, and they do it. Just like Nike, just do it. They just do it. They really do. And um, I think it's, this message is very beautifully hinted in the Midrash that I found here in um, uh, the story of Ruth. It's hidden in the Midrashes of uh, the Book of Ruth. But it's a beautiful Midrash that speaks about three uh, leaders who didn't go all the way. And therefore, the leadership was blemished. These are three leaders that are quite well recognized in the Torah. But had they gone all the way, history might have been different. Let's read about these three leaders, and let's see uh, what this teaches us. Let's continue. Rabbi Hitchcock said, when a person does a mitzvah, he should do it with all his heart. And Reuben known told more of these words, and Reuben heard that his brothers were plotting to kill Joseph, and he saved him from their hands. He would have, he would have carried Joseph back to his father Right, so just to, to uh, again the, recall the very quick story of Joseph, as you all know it, these brothers, uh, Joseph's brothers, threw Joseph into the pit. Reuben, as the eldest brother, felt the responsibility. He said, I have to save my brother. I'm the oldest. I have to take action here. But uh, my brothers are going to start uh, attacking me, maybe. Who knows? So I'll leave. I'll let them do whatever they want. When my brothers leave, I'll come back. And take my brother out of the pit. I'll save him. He was ambivalent. He didn't go all the way. He didn't just do it. Okay? That's one example. Another example is Aaron. Let's continue. Had Aaron known the Torah would write about him, and he will see Moses, and he will rejoice in his heart. Now, jealousy was the most point of his history. He would come out. Right, so this is when after Moses had the revelation by the burning bush, he now goes back to Egypt to save his, uh, his nation. Aaron was awaiting him, but Aaron was a little uh, reserved. He didn't want to jump and dance, say, hey, he's my brother, he's the next leader, even though he was very happy that Moses was chosen as the next leader. Why? People could have said, oh, he's putting on his show because really deep inside he's jealous. That's why he's dancing and he's showing that face. So he stood there quietly. If he had known, the Midrash says that his deeds would be recorded, would have been recorded, um, as, as, uh, as we'll soon see. He would have changed his acts. And let's read about the third leader, Boaz. Go, go ahead. Had Boaz known that the Torah would write about him, that he gave Ruth the parts great, he would have fed her fat camps. Right. Okay, so the story is about Boaz meeting Ruth, Ruth, who had come to his land. Ruth was a Moabite. She followed her mother-in-law, even though she didn't have to because her husband, mother-in-law's son, had passed away. The mother-in-law even told Ruth, you know what, you go back, you stay here in the land of Moab. Don't come with me. But she followed her. She said, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you sleep, I'll sleep. Wherever you eat, I'll eat, and so on. And they end up in this field owned by Boaz. 
a wealthy man from the land of Judah. Boaz sees Ruth, sees the, this and his, uh, Ruth and his, her mother-in-law, and he wants to feed them. He has compassion in his heart. He wants to feed them. But instead of feeding them an entire meal, what does he do? He feeds them just a little bit of corn. Why? Because he said to himself, well, if I feed them a whole meal, people around me will say that I'm trying to seduce these women. I'm trying to seduce Ruth. And I'm being uh, immoral. So uh, I'm not going to go all the way. But if uh, he had known that the Torah would be writing about him, he would have gone all the way. Now this is uh, more or less what Rabbi Moshe Al-Sheikh explains here. Let's continue. Continue, all right. Right. You know what's interesting? The first, one of the first conversations between parent and child in the Torah is a conversation between Abraham and Isaac as he's leading him to be sacrificed. But it's one of the first conversations, perhaps, of one, because of one word that appears there. And that's when Isaac says to Abraham, uh, he calls him. Uh, he calls him out, and Abraham responds, by Hineni, Yerahem, my full self, my unreserved self. Uh, that sets the tone for all leaders to come. Abraham was perhaps one of the first uh, uh, monotheistic leaders, at least. And he sets the tone. If you want to be a leader like Abraham, you have to say, Hineni, go all the way. They didn't go all the way. These three leaders didn't go all the way. <coughs> they, and and, and that, that really uh, uh, is a stain on their leadership. We have to be able to give of our entire selves. This, this sad story about a young child who once came to his father and says, Dad, how much uh, money do you make per hour? Dad becomes very angry. He says, it's none of your business. Leave me alone. He says, please, Dad, how much? Go to your room. Go to your bed. The child is crying, and then the father realizes, boy, maybe I was a little too harsh on him. So he goes back and says, I'm so sorry, but you know, it's not really your business how much money I make. The child says, but please, Dad, how much money do you make per hour? <laughs> the father says, well, okay, if you really want to know, make $20 an hour. The child goes to his pillow takes out some cramped uh, dollar bills and gives seven of them to his father and says, here's seven. Can you lend me $13? Why would you want $13? Dad says, because I want an hour of your... Uh, the child says, because I want an hour of your time. I'd love to give you 20 for you to give me that attention. And sometimes we do that. 
not just with our children, but with our own inner leader. That inner leader wants to lead, wants to act, wants to just do it. And we say, you know what, maybe not now. Maybe we won't go all the way. And uh, it becomes a stain on our leadership. This is what this Midrash teaches us. And that's why I think the Midrash concludes so beautifully. That Midrash concludes by saying, hey, don't be like those leaders. Because we may not have a Torah today. Your deeds are not recorded in that Torah, but they are still recorded. You know who records those deeds? Let's continue. Let's, let's see how this Midrash concludes. Uh, Shmuel, go ahead. In the days of yore. What about us? Yeah, that, no, the, the, there you go. Right. Our deeds are still being recorded. You know by who? Elijah Mashiach. Elijah Mashiach, I believe, uh, of course, I mean, will happen. I have no doubt. It's uh, one of the 13 principles of faith by Maimonides. But they also represent the future. Our deeds are being recorded by the future. The future will tell uh, whether we were those venerable leaders that went all the way. Why? Because the future will be molded by those actions that were unreserved and unhindered. That's why I think the Midrash concludes in such a way. Uh, this is why also one of the great sages, Akavya ben Mahalel of the Mishnaic period, gave a beautiful, even a cruel, but a beautiful advice to his son as he was dying. See, he was dying, his son came to uh, his father's deathbed, and this is what he says to him. His father says, his, his son, let's read the Midrash. Let's go, Diana. Let's go. One of the great sages. Right, no doubt. Changes us. Right, yeah. right. No, it's true. Not just the future, the present is also molded by that. Yeah. One of the great sages, Akavya, mm-hmm. Right, Mahalalel, yeah. Was on his deathbed. Sorry, man, I should know your name. No, 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 not at all. He only appears once in the mission in the Prakavod. Yeah. Your deeds will draw you close, and your deeds will distance you. Put the emphasis on your deeds. Go all the way with your deeds. Anything else, any politics, yeah, speak to, my, uh, to your peers and so on. That's not going to fly. You got a, a leader is someone who emphasizes the deeds and goes all the way with them. That's the message of our I couldn't agree with it more. I think that uh, I once asked a musician uh, what um, is the greatest moment of um, his, um, his play uh, was a pianist and I asked him when do you feel that uh, when you play the piano in a symphony or alone when do you feel that you've reached that climax and he said to me do you know what he said to me he said when I'm not present you can relate to that right Shmuel great musician 
Well, I said to him, what do you mean? You're not present. You play the piano. He says, no. When I'm not present, it's just the music flowing from within me. I'm so connected to it. I'm so attached to it. I'm so one with it that exactly it just flows through me. I become that channel to the music. That's true. I think that's what makes uh, musicians, ultimate musicians. That's the difference between a regular violinist and uh, Yitzhak Perman. Yitzhak Perman, when he plays, the music flows from within him, unhinderedly. Why? Because he goes all the way. That's what makes leaders great leaders. They go all the way. Um, okay, and um, I think this is coming close to Purim. This is what we find with Mordechai and Esther. There's a beautiful exchange. And you know what? Maybe we won't read the verses. I'll just tell you about it. And then we'll conclude with a beautiful poem. But Mordechai and Esther, as you know, um, engage in this conversation. Esther is hesitant. Again, she doesn't want to go all the way. She's hesitant. She's the queen, right? Who's married to Achashverosh, who decreed this decree together with Aman. He stamped it. Against, uh, to exterminate all the Jewish people. Mordechai says to Esther, you're the only one that can save us, that can save our nation. You have to go and speak to Achashverosh. Esther is hesitant. She says, you know, we're not allowed. If I go in there without permission, he might kill me. What does Mordechai tell her? He doesn't say, oh, I feel for you, I feel for your life. Uh, maybe you're right, maybe you shouldn't go all the way. Rather, he says, no. If you don't heed the call right now and go all the way, Go to Achashverosh, despite your fears, then you will perish. The nation will find another way to find salvation. You will perish. You would have lost your place in history. That leader that you could become, that you ought to become right now, would disappear. That's a, I think that's one of the most powerful messages in the, in the Bible, in the Tanakh. I love this message because it tells us, you know what? There's something to be done, just do it. Yes, there's uh, risk calculations and so on, but, but go, go all the way. Be passionate about it, follow your convictions, and that's what will uh, uh, triumph at the end of the day. Um, before we conclude with this poem, it's written by a Brazilian, a very famous poet, but... Um, I'll tell you the story of Saul Werdiger. Saul Werdiger is the CEO of Outer Stuff. Does anyone know about this company? Outer Stuff is the biggest company for children's sports clothing. They, in fact, do uh, all the clothing for all of the major sports leagues, baseball, basketball, you name it. So he's the CEO of this big company called Outer Stuff. And in July 2014, when the Gaza war broke out, where some 15,000 rockets were launched by the Hamas on Israel. <clears throat> he gets a very peculiar phone call. By whom? By the ambassador of South Korea to the United Nations. He gets a phone call, I want to meet you. He says, fine, let's have lunch at a kosher restaurant. He's an observant Jew. Prime Grill, Manhattan. If you've been to Prime Grill, anyone? Delicious restaurant in the heart of Manhattan. Um, and uh, where is it exactly? I don't remember, but somewhere. And somewhere in Manhattan. I don't know if it's in Upper East Side or in Manhattan itself. But anyway, Prime Grill, uh, they, fine. On that day, on that day, uh, uh, that same day, uh, he gets a phone call again from the ambassador. You know what? I have to move our lunch from 12 to 1.30. Can you do it? He said, fine, I'll meet you at 1.30 at Prime Grill. At 12 o'clock, there's a vote at the United Nations. 
What's the vote against to condemn Israel for her violent actions against the Palestinians? All right, double standing in the UN is, uh, is a story in and of itself. But um, this vote doesn't go through. You needed nine votes to condemn Israel. There were only eight. The United States and I think Australia voted against it. Some uh, seven nations, uh, whatever, something like that, voted uh, to abstain. And uh, one of those nations was, was uh, South Korea. Why would South Korea abstain? What's the story with South Korea? Since when does it show us so much love? They learned Talmud in South Korea? Yes, they learned Talmud in South Korea. You should know. There was a whole story about that. But at 1.30, Saul Wodegger find out. This ambassador comes to him and says, you know, I just voted. Uh, I think it was either in favor or to abstain so that the vote wouldn't go through. Um, and um, I did that because of you. So Wodegger says, what do you mean? So the ambassador starts to explain to him, you know, we came, we moved to New York from South Korea a year ago. I have a young uh, daughter who's uh, blossoming into a beautiful young lady. And uh, she told me about your company. Really? She, yes, she works in your company. Oh, what does she do? She's an intern. And she's so impressed by you. Why so? And the ambassador says, well, because at 5 p.m., on a Friday afternoon, all the employees are sent home until Sunday. Shabbat is completely observed. She couldn't even fathom the idea of Shabbat, of that day of rest, that is so crucial to our society today. That made a deep impression on her. And you know what else? You, you, Mr. Werdiger, you greet all of your employees every morning with a big smile. That made a deep impression on her. You know what else? Everyone who comes in and knocks and asks for charity in your office, you give them a check. No one leaves. Whether it's $5 or 500 you give them a check. She's so impressed by your value of charity. And she's so impressed by the entire company that I said to myself, if this is what Jews are all about, they can't be that bad. So I advise South Korea not to vote against Israel. Jews can't be that bad. So Werdiger was a leader in his own context who said to himself, I'm going all the way. I believe in Judaism, I'm going all the way. I may lose money on the Shabbat, I'm going all the way. I may lose money when I give to charity, I'm going all the way. I may spend some time that I need to work in my office because I'm the CEO. Uh, when I'm smiling, greeting everybody, I don't care, I'm going all the way. That, my friend, had a deep impact that changed a vote in the United Nations, something that ought to be recognized. Because there was a leader there that went all the way. That's the fourth ingredient, and I think that uh, this poem really summarizes it beautifully. It's a poem that was written by a child to his mother. And I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, this is a famed Brazilian poet. I think still lives uh, today, <coughs> Paulo Colo. He's uh, sold poems and books. Uh, I think his bestseller sold some 30 million copies around the world. But uh, this is one of the poems he wrote. Let's read this and conclude with this. Let's go. I wasn't looking, I saw tears 
right it couldn't be truer our deeds are recorded are recorded in the eyes and in the hearts of those who watch us of our children of uh, ourselves of our future generations and they wa- that's why we shouldn't hesitate to go all the way so just to summarize leadership that leadership that is so lacking today that is one of the big challenges that we face as Jews is the leadership that needs to be revived if only we can face these four ingredients one one to discover that leader within, then to tend to it with care and with love, and to make sure that he shines through, so that we are made of one piece inside and out, and then to not hesitate to go all the way with it through deeds and good actions. That's about it. <laughs> Any question? No? All right. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? <laughs> You know uh, what the difference between optimism and pessimism is? (laughs) The pessimist says that this world, sorry, the optimist says this world is the best of all worlds. The pessimist agrees. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, 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 I'm uh, uh, I would say that Judaism teaches optimism. We spoke about this last uh, week, and I, I failed to evoke the verse that says that Netzach Israel lo yishaker, the eternity of Israel will not lie. In other words, Israel will forever exist, uh, in spite of the many predictions and the Pew studies and so on. Israel will forever exist. So I'm quite optimistic, uh, because I believe in a God that uh, will make sure that we don't fall too low, and more importantly, that we rise continue to rise and continue to rise but he's waiting for our efforts too in that direction okay thank you thank you yes 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 thank you But I do know that they are respected and actually even loved. Yeah, I know. I mean, I thought the cases were very well. I was done at the number of people. Oh, I see. Oh, that's very nice. So he's a member of our show. Nathan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell her I said, I will. She'll like that a lot. Good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've met my son a few times who comes to 
I'll be Goodman. I don't know if you know. Oh, yes, yes, I you know. know he's friends yes, with yes, uh, Justin. Yes, 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 of course. Yes. With all those guys. Yes, he's over in Israel on your course now. Oh, okay, very nice. I just nice. spent five weeks with him over there. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah, wonderful. Sunny Maragans. I will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're going a couple of weeks? Yeah. Wow, wow, taking, wow. I already. Think I told you, taking yeah, yeah, the whole family. Me. Yeah, that's right. In two weeks. Wow. Well, first week of, of yeah. April. First week of April. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. That's beautiful. We're going with Kesha. Do you know the Kesha yes. people? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I know they're, the they're going to be our guys. Great. Danny Yeah. Or his son, Peter. Peter Okay. I don't know that. But it's a great one. That's great. Beautiful. Well done. Well done, okay. Sid. Thank nice. you. Hi, Jenna. How are you? Hi. It's very nice meeting you, Sid. Very nice Oh, okay. Very good. That would be nice. Unbelievable. Wow. Way back. Yeah. What we lost? Yeah. Oh, wow. The only Jew in the. That's amazing. In anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. You come off this? Okay. She's an inspiration to me. She's, she inspires me. Inspiration to all of us. Yeah. She's a beautiful Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. We'll see you. Thank you so much. Thank you.